are about to listen to is a podcast produced by Philoclea Ministries. Philoclea Ministries is offered to all free of charge. However, there are real and immediate needs associated with it. If you are a regular listener or enjoy any of the content produced by Philoclea Ministries, we humbly ask that you consider becoming a contributor. You can learn more about our funding needs at www.philocleaministries.org. Please note that Philoclea Ministries is not a 401c3 nonprofit organization and that contributions are not tax deductible. Supporting Philoclea Ministries is just like supporting your other favorite podcasters and content creators, and all proceeds pay the production bills, make it possible for us to pay our content manager, and provide a living stipend for Father David. God bless you and enjoy the podcast. Glory to Jesus Christ, glory forever. Welcome back, everybody, to our study of the Evergatinos. And we're picking up this evening on page 389 with paragraph 18 towards the bottom of the page. Again, that's page 389. And if you remember, we've been discussing the distinctive qualities or marks of the humble man. And we had started to uh, look at some of the things that the father sees essential, simplicity of life, self-reproach, forgiveness. Uh, and we'll be continuing with some of these uh, this, this evening, in particular, self-reproach. And there's some clarifying paragraphs here that I think will be helpful for us. It's not a kind of, it's not self-hatred. It's a kind of uh, uh, acknowledgement, a recognition of the poverty of one's sin. And that actually frees us, as we'll see in this next paragraph, from self-justification of being of trying to and spending a lot of energy defending ourselves and our particular actions or our rights and it uh, opens up a kind of freedom for us to be more responsive to the will of god as well as trusting in the providence of god in our life and i think that humility in general does this for us that uh we often get locked into our own point of view our own judgment and when it comes to to things of the kingdom, and certainly matters of truth uh, that we might only have partial knowledge of in the sense of how God is working through a set of circumstances, uh, a willingness to let go of our hold on those things or our certainty, even when we seem to have a kind of certitude about the circumstances or seem to see things clearly that we can trust that God will work without our having to control or manipulate uh, circumstances. And uh, this can be a difficult thing for us to do, especially when it comes to matters of truth or religion. We often feel that we get uh, very protective about what's being said or done. And uh, in some ways, rightly so, but in other ways, I think it also can reveal our lack of trust in God. Uh, and uh, and I think what we see in the fathers is a radical kind of freedom, uh, certainly that comes at a cost, and but nonetheless a true freedom. So again, we're on paragraph 18, 389. Again, he said, who sold Joseph? One of the brothers responded, his brothers. No, the elder rejoined. It was his humility that sold him. 
He could have said when he was being sold, I am your brother, and argued with him. But in silence and humility, he let himself be sold, and his humility made him the ruler of Egypt. So it's an interesting example to begin with. Uh, and we certainly, I think, rare and rarely think of, of the text in the way that the, the elder does here that Joseph is acting out of humility, that he isn't defending himself, fighting for his rights there, even despite the fact of his being betrayed by his brothers, sold into slavery, and uh, uh, that he, in humility, allows this to take place in his life. And this opens up the door for God and his provi providence to guide Joseph uh, into a position of leadership uh, within Egypt uh, so that he might uh, be able to save his brothers when they experience famine. And, uh, and we, we see the full fruit of that virtue uh, in his engagement of his brothers once he reveals his true identity to them when they when they come seeking kind of mercy mercy from him and uh, that there is a deep love that he has for his brothers despite the fact of their their betrayal and has no thoughts of uh, taking vengeance but rather of uh, entering back into that relationship with them and offering them what they need and uh, and so in our day-to-day our -day life, uh, especially when we find ourselves in the throes of a discussion or a conflict uh, with another that is very heated uh, even. So we even not going to the extremes of the example of, of Joseph, if we're able to remain so silent and humble in those circumstances, or if we speak the truth, to speak it with a kind of charity and calmness and not give way to our anger or agitation, uh, that again, this can open up space for God to work and do mighty things that in and through this virtue of humility in particular, that uh, contains all the others, uh, that allows God uh, to work in us like no other virtue, that miracles can take place. And certainly this is what we see in Joseph's life, but it can take place in our life as well, that uh, we, when we're able to receive the reproach, the anger of others and not respond in kind, uh, that we're able to take hold of it in the same way that Christ does on the cross, receive it and receive it uh, in a loving fashion, in a humble fashion, that we are able to transform it, not by our own strength, but by the grace of God. That it is through such an act that uh, this points to, the story of Joseph points to, of Christ, uh, as it were, being sold into slavery, uh, being betrayed by his brothers, as it were, by his own disciples, by his own people as a whole, to the Romans than to be crucified. And he takes upon himself the burden and the weight of the sins world and, and saves us not only from starvation as Joseph saved his, his brothers, 
but saves us from, from death itself, from the eternality of death. Number 19. Again, he said, having let go of a light burden, namely self-reproach, we have taken up the heaviest, namely self-justification. So uh, I don't think many of us would see self-reproach as a light burden, <laughs> uh, you know, to acknowledge our poverty. And even in certain, certain circumstances where we might not see ourselves at, at fault, uh, to be able to, to bear uh, even the, the sin of a, a brother, and, uh, as Joseph did, and to take it upon ourselves, um, that we, we will set this aside and we'll take upon ourselves something that is much more difficult to carry, self-justification. Uh, to ar argue in our own defense, to seek to defend ourselves at every turn uh, against the actions, the words, the behaviors uh, of others. And, uh, what, and this is where we have to keep our eyes fixed upon Christ, uh, because it seems so reasonable for us to do so, to justify ourselves, to put forward our rights, our dignity, uh, in the in the face of being treated poorly, uh, and everything in this world, uh, uh, I think, confirms that for us. And it's it's very difficult uh, to walk the path of Christ. I mean, this is the the path of the cross. Uh, who is more innocent than the Lord? And uh, and yet He calls us to walk this path. Uh, not of self-justification, but of self-reproach, where we, as it were, take upon ourselves uh, the sin uh, of others, and uh, either recognizing our solidarity with others in their sin, or or bearing what is directed towards us uh, with a kind of love and fidelity. This and it requires a deep faith and acknowledgement that our, our there's a brevity to our life in this world, and all that we experience in this world, uh, all of it put together, does not uh, shape our identity. Our identity is rooted in being made in the image and likeness of God, and the life that He's given us through His only begotten Son. So that whatever might happen to us within this world, even if you know it's suffering from beginning to end, does not equal certainly who who we are in Christ. And so I think the the fathers act for us in a similar way that the the gospels do, that they try to make us uh, move past the confines of our own sensibilities and to open our minds and our hearts to what faith alone uh, can reveal to us, that uh, love endures, love alone endures, and has the capacity to conquer all things. And when, we, when push comes to shove, 
uh, we've talked about this before. I think we all have our line that we draw in the sand and say no more, you know, that we place conditions on our love and our forgiveness, our compassion. And it's, it's difficult to allow our, ourselves and our hearts to be stretched to the dimensions of God's uh, love. And this is what the, the fathers do for us here. Number 20, one of the fathers said about Abba John that through his humility, he had the whole skeetus hanging on his little finger. <laughs> I thought this, you know, I, I have to be honest with you. I struggled to understand what the heck this was speaking about. Uh, other than that the, the little finger is the, the weakest uh, appendage uh for us and certainly of, of the hand and uh and in his humility uh he was able to elevate the community in a sense take up the how does it put here he has the whole skeet is hanging on his little finger that he ele elevates he holds up the the whole life of the skeetus I think that we could read this in a different way. Maybe I think when I first read it, it sort of sounded like he had the ability to control or manipulate others in some way by his humility or direct them. Uh, but if we are to read it in that way, I would say, okay, yes, he had the ability to guide and direct the whole skeetus with the gentleness of touch with his pinky, uh, that there was no harshness in him whatsoever and such pure humility that he was able to move an entire community or a group of men with the, uh, with the slightest uh, uh, encouragement, uh, which I would see as an, uh, a valid reading as well. So I think what's being emphasized for us, though, is the strength of humility, of what it is able to accomplish. That which seems so gentle, so meek, or ineffective within the life of the world uh, is actually the strongest virtue. Here's a comment or a question. Louise writes, I do not know how to address with humility the fact that a friend has a picture of Moloch on the wall behind her when we talk on Zoom. She has always been fascinated by horror movies. I'm worried that she worships the demonic unconsciously. She says that she does not believe in God and does not know what happens after death, but she believes in the paranormal. She knows my devotion to Jesus Christ. Do, do you have any idea, Father David? Well, you know, I always think that certain relationships allow for more discussion. They provide us with opportunities to be more open with others. So marriages, friendships, where there's a history there that allows us to enter into a discussion of something like uh, religion or something that is more delicate. And to be able to do that 
with the kind of gentleness that we would need because we respect the other person, we love them. And so even with something such as this, you know, that's rooted in a real concern, you know, certainly for the, her, her welfare, uh, to be able to engage her about the image. And it might be as simple as asking a question. You know, I've noticed when we're on Zoom that you have this image behind you. What is it? Or what's it about? What meaning does it have for you? To get the person simply to talk about it. And again, you know, we've often talked about suspending judgment, not knowing where something even like this comes for. And you even sort of allude to this uh, in your comment of not knowing how deeply involved she is in this, consciously or unconsciously. And so, as it were, to really throw the ball in her court uh, in a non-condemning way and to see where she then take, takes you, what door it opens for greater discussion and, uh, and not to rush it. Uh, I think uh, people often will move to a defensive position when they, they feel attacked uh, rather than loved. And so I think when we show real interest in what people are doing and why, and what's the history behind that, then even if it is something that we disagree with completely, it can be received with love and seen as, some, as genuine concern. And uh, ultimately this might lead an individual, even without our having to explore it with them, to think about it more deeply themselves, what they might be taking for granted, or as you said, what might be more on an unconscious level might become more conscious for them simply because we bring it up in conversation. Now, why, why do I have this there? What, what does this, this mean to me? And perhaps it opens it up for a conversation about your own faith then, because she might ask, well, why, why do you ask? And you could say, well, I know what that image means and what it reflects. And so I'm curious, just because we're close, why you have, would have it on your wall. And uh, I think, again, this, it, this is what takes a kind of humility on our part to be able to do that, that we are able to hold on to the dignity and the identity of the other uh, and have that be elevated more than the actions or the words or the deeds that we're seeing. And we see this in Christ himself, you know, that the sheer horror, and I think we lose sight of it when we read the gospels, but the sheer horror that people would have had when Christ would have talked to prostitutes or the woman touching him and wiping his feet with her hair and, uh, or his uh, having, you know, meals with known sinners, tax collectors who were despised, that, uh, you know, that he was able to make himself so non-threatening, so gentle and, and meek that they were able to feel comfortable with him, with him in their home. You know, thinking of Zacchaeus, you know, how he climbs up the tree, he would have, it was a tax collector, and, you know, people would despise him, and there probably was mockery there because of his short stature, too. And yet Christ chooses him out of the crowd. I will stay with him 
this day or and uh, and there's something uh, there I think even that the present Holy Father has at times tried tried to awaken us to not to lose sight of the individuals that we can often get locked in uh, this kind of thinking that is ideological and you know where there are truths in, involved in it and so not to diminish the importance of it but not to exalt it either above the human human being the human person that we are engaging and in in this we're not uh falling short of the gospel we're embodying it when we see christ do the same thing with the people in his own day that what he sought uh, to do was to love and to show mercy and compassion. And in the end, this is the stronger uh, reality in the sense of touching the, the human heart. Uh, I think we still get locked into this notion that fear, you know, creating fear in the minds and the hearts of others or, uh, or emphasizing our power you know, in one way or another, intellectually or emotionally, and using that to, you know, beat them into our way of viewing things. I think we believe that it's the, the stronger, more powerful path. And so we will often take it. Whereas the more powerful path is actually that of humility. And even silence, we've been shown over and over again, that the embodiment of the love and the virtue uh, of the kingdom is what really has power to move mountains. You know, Christ again saying, if you had faith the size of a mustard seed, you could say, you know, to this mountain, be uprooted and move over here. You know, that, uh, and we all, the problem is, is that we often don't take Christ at his own word uh, in terms of how we live our day-to-day -day life. And, uh, you know, I had this thought running through our, my mind today, you know, you know, is what is so often called Christianity or how we embodiment, does it bear really any resemblance to the reality of what we see within the gospel? Uh, at times, it's a really hard thing when we, you see so so much of what's going on in the world and uh how christians engage even each other uh that or or even how we live our lives as christian men and women uh have we lost hold of the fundamental elements uh, of the gospel of the incarnation of the cross or of the eucharist that we receive uh at every liturgy and um, again, you know, I think this is why that Jesuit says, you know, where there's renewal in the church, there you will find the Desert Fathers. And I, I don't think it's because of their asceticism. I think it's because of what that asceticism led to, which was this really sharp vision of the gospel and its fullness. And this, you know, deep desire to embrace it fully and to have it shape their whole identity, to let go of their hold uh, of everything uh, other than the kingdom and other than Christ. And it's passages like this, and I think readings like this, that challenge us 
you know, what do we cling to that is not Christ? And sometimes it's not these, you know, material goods. Sometimes it can be our own point of view or our, our own sense of needing to put somebody right uh, in their way of seeing things or believing or in what they believe. Okay. Number 21. Abba John, uh, the Theban said, a monk should attain humility before all else. For this is the first commandment of the Savior, who said, blessed are the poor in spirit, that is humble, the humble, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And so, you know, very simply, uh, that in taking this path, again, we are taking Christ at his word, uh, in particular, the, the Beatitudes. Uh, and I, again, I think too often we look at the Beatitudes as sort of the Magna Carta of the faith, or, you know, in some ways, or, uh, but in reality, it's a portrait. I remember reading John Paul II, said this at one time, it's a portrait of Christ himself, that he's the embodiment of what is taught in the Beatitudes. And so blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who are humble, who have nothing within this world, uh, and who cling to nothing within this world, and that they are the ones that are truly happy or truly free, because their identity is found in one place, in God alone often stripped of everything within this world, they find true blessed blessedness. And we've talked a little bit about this in the past. If you remember that the blessed ones uh, among the Greeks were the, the, the gods. And those in this world who were blessed were most like the gods. So the wealthy, the rich, the healthy, the beautiful. And so... Christ's teaching on the Beatitudes, again, would have been turning the world on its head. He's saying, no, that's not the truth. In fact, that creates an illusion of happiness. The true blessedness is found in God and God alone. The, 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 the joy that lasts unto eternity. And so it's often those who seem the poorest in the world, the weakest in the world, that truly have the most. Number 22. Abba Poyman said about Abba Isidore that every night he would braid a bundle of palm branches and the brothers seeing him toil would beseech him saying, relax a little for you are now old. But he would reply to them, even if they burn Isidore and scatter his ashes to the wind, I will still have no respite, for the Son of God came into the world for our sake. So the Son of Man came to serve, not to be served. And uh, so seeing Isidore work like the rest of them, even in his uh, uh, old age, those around him want him to let up, to ease up on, on things, uh, to take it easy, to let others do the work. 
and uh, yet he has this clarity of mind. And I think what's important for us here is the spiritual life. And again, what Isaac the Syrian told us, you know, in the spiritual battle, there is no Sabbath. There is no day of rest. And in our love of God, our love of others, that is true as well. And so, you know, in the making, the making of the mats with palm branches isn't really the issue, nor worldly work. It's our pursuit of the kingdom and keeping ourselves focused upon God and the things of God. And where we let up, ease up in one area, we often will ease up in others as well. And so, you know, he's saying that even if I was burnt and scattered like dust to the winds, uh, you know, that I'm not going to give myself respite, that while I'm in this world, I'm here to serve the Lord and to serve others. Number 23, the same elder said likewise about Abba Isidore that when his thoughts said to him, you are now a great ascetic, he would reply to them, I am I perhaps like Abba Anthony, or perhaps I've become perfect like Abba Pambo, or finally, perhaps I've attained the stature of the other fathers who please God. By responding in this way, he gave himself rest and the thoughts withdrew and fled. When once more the enemies of our soul, the demons, caused him to be discouraged by telling him that after all this he would be cast into hell, he would reply to them, even if I am cast into hell, I will assuredly find you beneath me. And so we, we can be pulled in either direction, you know, to, to think there is no hope, you know, and so be drawn into despair and to make our weakness, our poverty greater than the love and the compassion of God. Or we could be tempted into thinking that we have earned uh, the kingdom for ourselves. And, uh, and so as great as Isidore was, you know, the, his response is almost mocking uh, the demons uh, and telling them, you know, my eyes great as Anthony or Pambo or or any of the great fathers for that for that matter it it uh, becomes a, a joke in his eyes and so in both ways he's able to put them to flight and you know we know that the demon is unresting I think in trying to draw us in one direction or another and so this is where we are to labor is typically with our thoughts, not to allow our, ourselves to be pulled in one direction or another. Abba Long, Longinos said that just as a corpse does not feel anything or judge anyone, so the man who is humble of mind cannot judge anyone, even if he should see him worshiping idols. Which is an interesting thought, getting back to Louise's question about the image of Moloch on uh, the wall of a friend. That even if we see with our own eyes an individual worshiping an idol of one sort or another, you know, whether it's a statue or an image on a wall or the idols that we would often worship within this world, wealth, 
or you know the uh, material goods that we would have around us that even should we see somebody struggling with these things and seeming to make uh, a lot out of them or make them their god that ours is to be no is to make no judgment whatsoever and uh and it's an incredible thing i came across a little discussion on twitter today and somebody mentioned me as i think trouble trying to draw me into it because somebody quoted a story it almost sounded like it came from the Evergatinos, but I'm not quite sure, but of one of the Desert Fathers. And uh, it was about, you know, three monks and they came across uh, a naked prostitute. And, you know, two of them turned away, you know, in this kind of horror. And the third was struck by her beauty. Uh, but the story goes on to say that it he wasn't driven by lust you know, that there was this, he, his heart was pure. And at first they, at first they were scandalized because he didn't turn away. And, uh, but when he spoke, they realized what, where his heart truly was. And in any case, there was this big sort of, you know, fight on Twitter where people thought this was the dumbest story they ever heard, or that somehow it was this magical power that this one monk had not to be, you know, moved by it. And uh, and so the reason I bring it up is that it is going to seem like foolishness, I think, in, in the eyes of the world. And, uh, you know, the poor guy, I think, was trying to, you know, argue back and forth, and he was blocking people who were, you know, ripping apart the Desert Fathers. And, uh uh, which is sort of ironic, you know, if they're telling us to be humble, uh, you know, it's, I don't think we have to be quite so defensive. But this idea of being a corpse, of not judging uh, uh, or feeling that we need to judge anyone, it's, it's something that seems foolish in the eyes of the world. And that's what that story was about, that it wasn't about the naked prostitute or a lust or anything. It was, it was really about the purity of this monk's heart and his unwillingness and inability at that point because of his humility to judge her. And, uh, and most often again, and the remarks of the people reflected this, is that we, we taste the opposite of the virtue that is being put forward. That it's hard for us to understand that level, level of purity or, or, or this level of humility, uh, perhaps not having tasted it in great measure, uh, that it can be hard for us to imagine that it would be possible for us to move through circumstances. And while internally we might be disturbed by the treatment of another or their anger towards us, we would move towards the Lord uh, or be able to maintain our perspective in such a way that we don't lash out, that we don't lose sight of their dignity, even though we see them having lost control or treating us poorly. And, uh, you know, this is where we really have to pray for a lot of grace. And most often, the first place for us to start is silence. 
especially in, in those moments of not when we are being attacked, not to give way to the passion of anger. The anger is normal as an emotion uh, in response to an, an injustice. But uh, often when we're driven by it, we can say things and do things that we later regret or allow thoughts to take root in our heart that we really would not want uh, to take root uh, because of that anger. Okay, number 25. Abba Matos said, the closer a man comes to God, all the more does he see himself to be a sinner. And when the prophet Isaiah saw God in his vision, he called himself wretched and unclean. Uh, I, I, I was taken by this, you know, because it was from Isaiah, uh, and, you know, one of the prophets, and I, I posted it online, and one comment sort of stands out. The person said, when, when, when does God ever call somebody wretched within the scriptures? And that's not what the passage is saying. It's not saying that God is calling the individual wretched. It's Isaiah has this, you know, when he has this vision of God, as he draws closer to God, one sees with greater and greater clarity the poverty of one's own sin. And we even hear Peter say the same thing in the miraculous catch of fish. Depart from me, for I'm a sinful man. And he catches a glimpse of who it is that stands before him. And the only thing that can arise out of his depths is this acknowledgement of his poverty. Leave me, because I'm not worthy to even be in your presence. And this is what Isaiah is saying as well. And so the more perfect one's humility becomes, the more that we see God for who God is and ourselves for who we are, the more our experience will be like this. And the, you know, our crying out, for example, of the Jesus prayer uh, deepens over the course of time in, in terms of how, how it rings true. Lord Jesus Christ, son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner or the sinner is really, uh, many say the more accurate translation of it or the prayer that they would have said, the sinner as if one is the, the sinner, you know, uh, above all others, not just one among others. That the, and this is how they truly came to see themselves. Again, not out of, out of say, self-hatred, but out of this humility. Soon Mark. Hey, Father. Um, one of the things uh, that I wondered about this particular um, uh, idea was with St. Philip Neri, where he would say, melancholy, you have no place in our house. And he, that he would, it seemed to me that I understood, and perhaps I got this wrong, that he didn't, he wouldn't really want around him that kind of negativity where people were denigrating themselves and I can remember when I would read some of those prayers of Ephraim the Syrian that I I would kind of say wow 
I don't know whether, uh, you know, um, St. Philip or Father, Father Darcy, whoever was the provost at that time, if he heard you saying that about yourself, whether he would let you come in and be a member of the oratory. So um, I find that, um, I don't know, just, I, I wondered if you could explain that in a different way. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, nothing to be sorry about. I mean, it's a good question. Uh, and I always love to talk about St. Philip Neri and in particular his joy. And to be able to ask, where do people think that that joy came from? And was it part of his natural personality, you know, his demeanor, uh, his character, or was it rooted in something much deeper uh, in this intimacy with God? Uh, if we remember, Philip Neri saw himself as a desert monk living in the city. And he read Climacus and Cassian. They were two of his favorites. First 10 years of his life. Uh, from our perspective, he would have lived almost like a beggar, you know, he, in terms of what he ate. Maybe an egg, a few olives a, a day. Uh, he eventually did tutor a couple of boys of a family that gave him a room to stay in. But most of the time he spent in prayer in the catacombs uh, at night, all night long. And I think Philip was rooted very much in the spirituality of the Desert Fathers. And it's always, for me, uh, been the reason for the depth of his joy, uh, precisely because of what the, the Fathers say, that the, this repentance, this acknowledgement of even the wretchedness of one's sin, is something that leads one toward God. That this contrition, this compunction, as the Eastern Fathers, and I think in the West, sometimes we've moved away from it, where it becomes self-hatred. But for the Eastern Fathers, it was always this sorrowful joy The meat was the meaning of the word. We don't really have any English equivalent uh, to it. Uh, but it was this repentance, this deep contrition that then leads one back to God and then to experience the fullness of joy of this intimacy with him. And so Philip's joy was rooted in this deep purity of heart that he had attained uh, and had fostered really from his youth. If you read his, his life, that there was a purity of heart that he guarded and protected throughout the course of his life. Uh, uh, he was capable of having these moments like in Isaiah too, you know, being brought to a dinner where he was being treated with this uh, particular uh, kind of respect, you know, people uh, bringing him food or wine. He burst into tears because he had a realization of, of Christ, you know, being spit upon, having nowhere to lay his head. And here he was being treated like, you know, uh, ro royalty. And, uh, and so Philip had this same kind of clarity that I think we're reading about here. Uh, I think there is a problem sometimes when he's made out simply to be the jokester or the joyful one in a worldly sense that 
uh, Philip had this ability with people to draw them out of themselves and out of the wrong kind of sorrow uh, in order that they might be more aware of what they have in Christ and would often uh, have them do these things to humble themselves in order that they might not take themselves too seriously not to not take themselves serious at all, or not to take anything serious, but not to take themselves too seriously. And so often, you know, somebody who wanted to wear a hair shirt, making them wear it outside of their clothes, or it, making them carry a dog through the city streets, uh, or, uh, uh, you know, go to the wine shop and ask for like a pint of wine and carry it through the streets in a big jar so people would laugh at them. You know, that Philip had this way of humbling his disciples without, you know, breaking them. And that he was the opposite of somebody like Savranola. Uh, who was eventually condemned as a heretic and burned at the stake. Uh, but Philip Neary kept an image of him on his wall in his room because he admired his desire, his zeal, his love uh, for God. But he became almost the exact opposite of Savernola. It's almost that he became this reminder of this fierceness that becomes an end of, in itself or lacks this kind of humility uh, that we are reading about in this, in this hypothesis. His constant refrain to his disciples was be humble, be lowly, be humble, be lowly. And which is echoing everything that we are saying here. And I think what Philip discovered is what Francis of Assisi discovered in his poverty, that there was a real freedom there and a real joy uh, that came from embracing that, that path. So, you know, I agree with what you're saying, you know, that uh, there have been plenty of saints who said, you know, God uh, spare us from, you know, gloomy, gloomy saints, you know, those who, you know, constantly with a furrowed brow, that our asceticism should be something that gives way to that same kind of joy of Philip Neary. It's the joy of the kingdom, though. Not often the joy, as we experience it, the joy that is rooted in sin. Does that help at all? Or you want to follow up? I'll probably come back and listen to it later. Okay. All right. That, that'll probably be what I do. Okay. That is a lot. All right. That's good, though. Thank you. I okay. It. Sure. Yeah, don't hesitate to bring it back up. We'll talk more about it. And uh, so there is something, you know, jarring to the sensibilities here. No doubt about it. And uh, And so I'm glad that you would ask questions about it. Where do we leave off? 26? I think so. Is that correct? Number 26. The same elder said, when I was young, I thought that I was perhaps doing something good. But now that I am an old man, I see that I have not even one good deed to show. Uh, so again, this kind of truthful living, 
that we can often evaluate ourselves and estimate our value as being very high at different times in our life, especially in our youth. You know, we can be filled with ourselves and think, you know, when we do a few good things, we've, you know, we deserve a lot of praise. And it's interesting, Philip Neary, who we were often, we were just talking about, one of, again, one of the things that he would constantly ask his disciples is, when shall we begin to do good? So that they would, again, have at the forefront of their mind, not to rest on past things or hold on to the illusion that there was a perfection there. That, uh, and so to say, when shall we begin to do good is to say similar to something similar to what we're reading here. It's like anything I did in my youth is not, not a, even a close reflection to the goodness of the one who I'm seeking, the goodness of Christ. The brother asks Abba Matos, how can the monks of Skidus succeed in doing more than the commandment says, that is, loving their enemies more than themselves? Up to now, replied the elder, I have not loved even him who loves me as much as I love myself. So that's a bit sobering, too. You know, he's he's being asked this question, well, how am I you know, to fulfill this commandment, to love my enemies. And, and his honest answer to him doesn't even address the question, but it goes deeper. I, I, if I'm really honest, I really have not even been able to love Christ, who loves me more than I love myself. That I haven't really even been able to see that and to be grateful for it and to love him in return, let alone love my enemies. And in a subtle way, I think this redirects us to where we, we need to be, which is to be focused upon Christ and that uh, it is he who loved us first and that our loving of him and our enemies is a response of gratitude to what we've received. Again, love is the thing that is the greatest uh, motivator that compels us the most. When we're able to see the depth of the love of Christ, we're able then to humble ourselves as, as he did, not simply as a, as a discipline or as a law. Abba Jacob said, I once visited Abba Matos. As I was leaving, I said to him, I want to visit the hermits the cells. Greet Abba John on my behalf, said the elder. So when I went to Abba John, I told him, Abba Matos greets you. The elder responded with delight. Abba Matos is an Israelite indeed, and whom is no guile. After a year, I visited Abba Matos again and conveyed Abba John's greeting to him. He answered modestly, I'm not worthy of the elder's praise. Know this, however, that when you hear an elder honoring his neighbor more than himself, you can be sure that this man has attained to great heights, for this is precisely what perfection is, that a man honors his neighbor more than himself. So, you know, the, the focus for both of them 
uh, was not to, to simply receive the, the praise and pocket it, uh, but to be able to acknowledge that, uh, that our attitude and humility is to elevate the other. Uh, it's not that we can't receive, uh, you know, a, a, a greeting such as this, uh, but it is saying that we, we aren't meant to take hold of it for ourselves. If we hold on to that too long, you know, we can come to believe something that isn't true about ourselves. So it's always best to give way to the other in terms of honor. Number 29, a brother Basad Abamatos, Father, say something that will benefit me. Go and beseech God, replied the elder, to give you mourning and humility in your heart. Always be mindful of your sins, never judge others, but become lower than everyone else. Cut off familiarity from yourself and restrain your tongue and your belly. And if someone talks about a certain subject, do not argue with him. But if he speaks well, say yes to him. And if he speaks badly, tell him, you know what you're talking about. And do not quarrel with him about what he has said. This is humility. Isn't that an interesting way of responding to something? That if somebody becomes argumentative and they are right, or if they, if they speak well, then we can say, you know, yes, you know, that, okay, you're, you're, you're correct. But even the one who argues badly, who is at fault, you know, to be able not to give rise to the, the desire to quarrel, but to say, you know what you're talking about, which is true, that from that person's perspective, and from their point of view, they know what they're talking about. And we don't need to dispute that. And it's not our job to draw a person out of that, much less by quarreling with them or you know, in, endangering ourselves or others by being drawn into to anger. So humility has this, this capacity to see what really has enduring value. That we, we don't have to hold on to things with this, you know, iron grip uh, as if our life depends upon it. Because it doesn't. Our life depends upon one thing, and that's Christ. Who cares if somebody were, wins an argument? I think one of my cousins, one of my said something like, he said, you know, five minutes after you're in the grave, who's going to even remember about it? Who's ever, who's even going to, you know, whether it was a quarrel or whatever it might have been, it's not even going to be in anybody's mind. So, you know, why do we so desperately hold on to these things as, as if everything, all meaning rides on them? Okay. Abba Xanthius said, a dog is better than I, for he has love and does not judge. <laughs> it's a good one to end on tonight. And I think I've learned a lot about that this this year. Uh, 
there, there is something uncanny about dogs. And I, I understand what the father is saying here, that there is no judgment there. And there is this quickness to forgive and forget, like they don't remember things. That what they seek to do is most often is to show affection and this kind of what seems to be unconditional love. And so in some ways, dogs often seem better than us. And sometimes we go too far. Sometimes people go too far with that, you know, in terms of making dogs people. But, uh, they, they, you know, even the fathers recognize that there can be something special about them. You know, even when you leave, there is this sense that dogs, when you leave, they think you've left them forever. And yet when you come home, there's this like unbounded joy. And uh, so maybe it's not a bad thing to meditate upon. You know, in some ways we would do better to engage others like dogs, <laughs> more grateful even from the scraps that we receive from the table. So any final thoughts about anything that we've looked at tonight? Again, you know, be patient with yourself, most of all with yourself, but I think with the writings too, I mean, there is a kind of sharpness to them that can be unsettling and, uh, Certainly, you know, I'm not the great defender of the fathers and their writings. You know, I, I love them, and uh, but uh, I certainly don't take any offense at people questioning them or being uncomfortable with them. I've certainly felt uncomfortable with them many times throughout the course of my life, too. All right, any final thoughts before we close? All right. When we close, as always, then with our Father, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, the Holy Spirit, amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. Amen. The Lord be with you. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace.